Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. On today's show, we'll discuss a continuing empty room, an opportunity ignored by most investors because they either don't want to or can't participate. We've shared conversations under the theme about investing in Venezuela, Africa, CLO equity, tax assets, and biotech. Among them, biotech is a room that just keeps getting emptier, so I thought it would be fun to pay it another visit. My guest on today's show is Rod Wong, the founder and managing partner of RTW Investments, a life sciences-focused investment and innovation firm of 80 professionals that manages $6 billion in assets. 
I had a chance to drop by Rod's office in New York and discuss his background, case for life sciences, investment and business approach, investment process across sourcing ideas, research, probability assessment of binary outcomes, portfolio construction, competition, and outlook. Before we get going, you might notice a little change in the inflection of my voice. As you might expect, this clip still falls in the same slot on the show as usual. But something is just a little bit different. Have you figured it out yet? Thanks to a recommendation from Josh Wolf, I used AI voice recognition software to clone my voice. So this isn't Ted recording this week's Spread the Word. It's Fake Ted. Josh called me Lab Grown Ted, which was a tip of the cap to my wife Vanessa, who, as you may remember, sells Lab Grown Diamonds. Ted didn't want to keep using the space to promote his wife's business, but I don't mind at all. You can check her out at Greenwich Jewelry Concierge on Instagram. Now, I promise the interviewer on the show is still the real me, at least for now. So this week, I, that is fake Ted, would like to ask you to tell a colleague about my stealing real Ted spotlight on the spread the word clip. And then you can discuss all the positive and negative implications of where this could go when the software gets even better. Just keep in mind, as Josh said, AI Ted lasts forever. Thanks so much for spreading the word about fake Ted on Capital Allocators. Please enjoy my conversation with Rod Wong. Rod, good to see you. Thanks. Good to see you. Why don't you take me back to how you first got interested in medicine? I think that's basically a blend of my dad and my mom. So my dad was my hero growing up, like all good sons, I think. And uh, he was a theoretical physicist and, you know, gravitated towards the sciences, was pretty good at math, but I was not my dad. And my mom was very grounded, concrete person. She's architect designer. And so I think I just kind of went somewhere in between. You know, I ended up being pre-med in college and I love biology. Chemistry made sense to me. It felt very natural. So from that natural path to science, how did you go off the rails? That's an interesting way to put it. <laughs> the, you know, the funny thing was as I was falling in love with life science and kind of drifting away from hard science or abstract science. At the same time, I took, you know, an econ course, a couple of econ courses. This Harvard prof, Gregory Mankiw, I think it is, he wrote the most used intro microeconomics textbook in the country. And I fell in love with that textbook. I mean, back then, you could have called me like a cult follower or something. So I fell in love with econ at the same time. And so very early, I kind of had both interests that were growing. And so even when I applied to med school, I was thinking, you know, med school and business school. I can't say that any idea what career path, you know, if I try to put myself back in my shoes at that time, maybe I was thinking administration and practice kind of thing. But that's just because I didn't know any better. You know, business school was great. I interviewed for everything you could imagine. And then it all kind of crystallized when I met the guys I ended up working for my first job at Cowan, which was equity research. You know, when I met them, uh, it's like looking in the mirror and it just felt right. And so uh, that's how it happened. And what was your path from there forward? Honestly, I'm very, very fortunate. It was linear. You know, as a biotech equity research associate for Cowan. And I picked up the phone one day and a portfolio manager named Wayne who worked at uh, Sigma, you know, one of the old SAC divisions. My boss was out. He asked me some questions. I tried to answer the questions. He had just had an associate leave, I think, to like travel around the world or something. And I built a relationship with him over a few months. 
And then, you know, he liked me enough that he made me a job offer. And so I went from that associate job on the sell side to an analyst job on the buy side. I was very lucky. Wayne was an incredibly successful money manager um, at the time. He was very, got a lot of attention for. And so people wanted a piece of Wayne. And I was one of the very few guys that was working for him. So I got opportunities. And then the next job was portfolio manager at DK. I was young when I started that job, I think 28 or something like that. I knew just enough, I think, and had just enough edge at an evolving time in the industry. And I was confident and naive enough to think that I could do the job. So I did that for a while. And then eventually we started this place. A couple thoughts before we get into sort of what's changed over the years. DK, very well-known, event-driven. You think of it as a risk-controlled type place. Obviously, investing in life sciences is generally thought of as quite volatile. How did that fit together? Well, that's a great point. I mean, honestly, I think biotech, especially the way we that I've always done it, which is longer term oriented, is difficult to fit in any larger firm that's not focused only on healthcare. I mean, if you think about it, boil it down, the top down vol is higher than average. The bottom-up or idiosyncratic, you know, event-driven vol is way higher <laughs> than average. And the expertise that you need to get comfortable to speak the same language, it's about as big a gap as you can probably get, right, for at least for long-short equity. So from that perspective, I think it's hard to make it work anywhere. I am so grateful to the folks at DK for taking a bet on me to build that business there. And, you know, DK specifically was also on the conservative end in terms of the vol profile of their primary vehicles. So it was especially challenging. But, you know, it was great for the uh, about four years that I was there. We actually built a business that grew very quickly. Built, I learned how to build a team. I learned how to market. I got wonderful mentorship. At the end of the day, for all the obvious reasons, long-term oriented healthcare strategies, most of them need to stand on their own to be have a shot at being successful. And I'm also at the end, you know, I realized kind of a entrepreneurially oriented kind of person. So eventually it became obvious. So before we go into what you're doing and have been doing since, would love to get your take on just the case for life sciences investing looking out from today. So we are 18 months into a biotech bear market, that's the second worst correction in the history of the industry, right? The first being the obvious one, the genomics bubble bursting in 2000 to 2003. It's second longest, second deepest. So the first case, I would say on a short-term basis, is that valuations are cheap. And that sets up well, even though it's been painful, <laughs> looking forward. The more important thing, though, is I think what you're thinking about, which is innovation. We are in the mid to early innings of what I would call the biggest innovation boom our sector industry has ever seen. And I kind of split it out into two major drivers at the end of the day. One is the access to cheap information that increases the odds that you can discover a meaningful medicine. Uh, the number one piece of information that's gotten cheap is the genome. The genome was sequenced a long time ago. 2000 was the first draft, cost $300 million. $300 million is like a great human achievement, but just like landing on the moon, it doesn't enable anything. Now it's a few hundred dollars and that's enabled a lot. So the first piece is information telling us 
what causes disease, et cetera. And the second is, I think the piece that's a little bit less obvious to folks that don't spend time thinking about this, is this explosion in the number of modalities that we have, which are the underlying technologies at which you can develop drugs based off of, right? So we're all familiar with the ones that we have had, small molecules, proteins, antibodies. We had them for decades. And basically, as those core three ones, it's an oversimplification, but that's a fair characterization, I think, at a high level. And now people are very well aware of things like RNA because of the COVID vaccine. But the list of additional modalities is long, and they've all been introduced in the last half a decade to a decade. Cell therapy, gene therapy, gene editing, antibody drug conjugates, protein degraders. We've more than tripled the number of technologies that you can produce drugs from. And that list I just kind of rattled off, that's not science fiction. The only things that I've named are things that have proven themselves mature enough to actually have drugs come from them. I think it's those two factors that are driving the boom. And I think, you know, it should be a couple decades at least of then improving these modalities, utilizing the information, and just getting a lot more drugs developed. So when you have that type of growth and that type of potential on the science side for an increase in number of effective drugs, you then take on your business school hat and say, okay, on the business side, there's more volume. There's questions about price, right? You hear about things coming off patent and the pressure on on drug prices. How does the likely, let's say, increase in the innovation on science translate to what you think happens for these businesses? I think it's a great question. I think there are moving pieces that we can't know the definitive answer yet. This price versus volume question, not just because policymakers are pressuring price, but also because if you move from more frequent monopolistic markets to more competitive markets because innovations sped up so much, you have multiple players for the same opportunity, those things have to net against each other. I like to frame it this way, which is that Drug development is one of the sectors that has relatively good value capture via pricing. So you're starting from a relatively good place. I think about the opposite is actually in tech, where you you hear all the time, like uh, 90-some percent of the value accrues actually to the consumer. A lot of things that we consume in tech are actually free, but it's still been the basis of a tremendous amount of value creation. So I think about that way very simplistically, that if you're going to generate a ton of new products, right? On average, we've been approving 40-ish drugs a year, and if 40 goes to 80, even if you're losing some um, on pricing, it should be a tremendous amount of value creation. So let's circle back to your starting RTW. What was your original intent on starting the business? When I started, I have some beliefs about how to invest in healthcare optimally. That kind of looks like run a moderately concentrated portfolio, take bigger bets, have edge in two basic things, right? At that point in my career, call it mainly talent or whatever, or the beginnings of a process where I thought I could assess the likelihood of of success better than the market. So the probability piece. And then two, size those opportunities better than the market. So at the end of the day, the strategy was find those things that offer high probability, asymmetric risk reward over a medium to long duration and build a portfolio out of those things, recognizing that great drugs that are underappreciated by the market should be hard to find. So that should be a moderately concentrated 
portfolio. I had confidence at the time because of the experience that I had for a few years at DK. When I started, I was still basically a stock picker at heart, but I was starting to get the itch of, oh, can you do more? Can you be more involved whether it's transactionally building things. Those were just ideas at the time. There wasn't like a plan. I like the idea of being an independent firm, having the freedom to do that someday. Where in that, um, say, last 14, 15 years, did you start to see those opportunities go from an idea that you could do more to being able to deploy capital? It really was a, um, a gradual evolution for most of it. It got more intentional, I would say, in the last handful of years. But a lot of it would be, we were compelled. We would encounter an opportunity, and that opportunity would be missing something, or it would require change. And so then we had to figure out how to do that. I think the biggest case study in our history, in terms of taking the extreme example, was Rocket Pharma. That's... Um, one of the things I'm most proud of in my career so far in terms of the most rewarding experiences to play a part in creating something that, that I think could be very impactful. You know, Rocket is the third largest independent gene therapy focused company right now. So that came about because we were doing a deep dive in gene therapy. We thought that the technology had matured to a point where you're going to see drugs come from it. And even though there are quite a number of gene therapy companies out there at the time, this was Rewind, call it seven, eight, nine years ago, we were noticing that there were academic projects out there that didn't have company sponsors that looked like they could be compelling drugs. And so the only way to take those forward or to participate was actually to build, create, and incubate and build a new company. And so that kind of thinking ultimately got us into a whole bunch of areas. And so now we're very much not just stock pickers, right? Now we're what we call full life cycle investors, and we can participate kind of on the whole spectrum from entirely passive to completely operational. Going from stock picking to the other end of the spectrum, building companies, what do you need to have in place to make that work? The way I think about it is that over the years, we transitioned from a few people with some talents and skills to building an organization with capabilities and organizing those capabilities in a thoughtful way. So we have a few key divisions now. We have people whose primary job description is to analyze things. The way we've approached evolving analysis is that we've said, hey, you know, science has become way more complex. So in analysis, it's been about developing and acquire expertise that's subspecialized by disease, by modality, things like that. And then in the building part, it's about what functional expertise do you need to do the things that we want to do. You need deal makers, so transactional people. That's not just ex-banker types, but legal uh, internally as an example. And then you need builders. So that is really what key roles that would normally exist at a biotech company should we bring in-house so that we can move more efficiently, so we can create muscle memory, institutional memory, so that we can do those things in a, you know efficient way. Over time, that's basically what we've tried to build. I think you can make a list and probably do a pretty good job of the things that you might consider that you want in-house. But the trickiest thing, actually, in our evolution that I found was to get it all to work together smoothly without the wheels coming off the bus. When you think of biotech companies or any kind of corporation, those are people that spend a lifetime 
developing their careers in a way that's where they're working with other people. And that's part of what is gating criteria to be successful. Most asset management firms, even very, very successful people, even big firms are structured as very small teams, sometimes just flat out individuals. There's a lot of lone wolf culture to get away from that, what's in the DNA of money management to something that's more, you know, the skills that you need from the corporate world was really a challenging thing. And it it took us a while to figure it out. Another lens of that is science. I would guess that you imagine scientists have more of that genotype of the money manager, right? Oh, you're a hundred percent going doing research on the academic labs. I don't want to say make broad negative generalizations. Of any, <laughs> but, but it's the same thing. They are small teams that are very, very good at what they do. And you develop big personalities, big egos from that. And that's a management challenge when what you're talking about is you want people with different expertise to really come together and work together and actually be happy doing it. What are some of the ways you made that work? Uh, we got a lot of help. We sought help every way we could think to find it. We brought in outside consultants. We hired people that are professional leaders and managers. We developed internal training programs, which are constant, ongoing, coaching. Everything that we could think of to just get us there faster, we tried to do. What's the best example of something you point to from when you were making that transition? I think when you read like management textbooks, I remember there was one that I read in business school. It was like in technology operations management. I was talking about like the, the Toyota manufacturing line when there would be these bottlenecks and these fire drills because of that. You know, in hindsight, it's so obvious, but when you're living through it, it never feels obvious until someone points it out. But that's what we were experiencing. We would basically have just a lot of fire drills and we're misdiagnosing what the cause of those fire drills were, right? When you don't have structure and process, when you don't have competent management, people point fingers at each other and say, oh, it's because that person's not doing their job or, um, and all these things. And when you actually build in structure and process and you learn what it takes to be a competent manager, all those things just kind of fade away. And that was completely our experience. It took, I would say, two years to go from, you know, 0% to 90%. And it was not an easy two years. But actually, from a professional standpoint, I think it's one of the things I'm also most proud of because it was really challenging. It required me to learn a lot of new things. And I'm very proud that we got to the other side. What are your favorite tools or processes that you now have in place that you think are really impactful in making that work? Yeah, it's funny because when you're first doing this, you tend to overdo things. So like, you know, one, just as a small example, we got religion about using slides as part of our process. Uh, Structures our meetings, you know, uh, forces people to be clear with their communication. And at one point, you know, a good deck, quote unquote, you know, in RTW was probably 30 to 50 slides long. (laughs) And I remember we had one, one offsite where I bet we presented 300 slides. And we made people sit there (laughs) and and listen for four hours, you know, to 300 slides or whatever. And then you make progress. And now what is a great deck? A great deck is probably four slides. So we added a bunch of tools. They're all some blend of falling under the buckets of structure or process. 
And then it was a process of taking the tools like PowerPoint decks and just using them to the point where it's optimal, not weighing the organization or teams down and building those things, but just to facilitate the job that needs to get done. And so now I think that's where we are. You know, a lot of it's also on the structure piece, organizing the firm well. It's basic things that you don't think about when you're a small firm, like making sure you have people reporting into the right people, making sure you have managers that are competent to deal with their direct reports, and those kinds of basic things. So if you were to pin me down and say, what are your couple favorite tools? I would say very short PowerPoint decks, and I would say Gantt charts. How do you use the Gantt charts? I think Gantt charts are useful because in a single slide, you can show all the projects that are important to people, and you can show who owns them and over how much time you have to get those projects done, and then you can track it. Sounds really simple. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's the beauty in their power. All right, I want to turn to how you're thinking about investing. More and more drugs potentially getting approved, more businesses to track. How do you think about where your investment opportunities are coming from and, and the filters that you're using? You know, the mission has remained unchanged in the sense that at the end of the day, you know, our mission is to find things that can be transformative products, you know, drugs or medical devices or something else that offer a compelling commercial opportunity as a result, have a compelling risk reward. So the way I kind of think about sourcing now is that it's about actually we're not married to any one way of doing things. It's about having as many productive funnels for sourcing as possible. Now, we have our core funnels. For example, absolutely probably the biggest single funnel is that we have analysts that are divided up by disease and modality. Those represent coverage areas for those analysts, just like they do. You know, that sounds very similar to most you know, investment firms of some kind. You have a coverage universe. And they bring in ideas because they own those areas. So that's a core funnel. But we have so many other funnels now because we do business development for private companies, because we have some brand and reputation now, and so people seek us out, because we have repeat uh, working relationships with executive teams and entrepreneurs, because we work across different security types, right? We've been growing a royalty strategy at the firm, as an example, and that brings in new ideas. And we're not just doing it only in New York or in the U.S. Now we have a small outpost in London and in Shanghai, And so we have international funnels. So we've really tacked on all these different ways of sourcing. And it's about making good decisions at each step as you move your way down the ultimate funnel so that you're killing things quickly, you're doing deeper waves of research in an efficient way so that ultimately we can find the ideas that can become something in the portfolio. What do those target ideas look like? If you look at our top 10 winners and losers, which is actually my favorite slide, because I think if there's one slide that you can look at that gives a person a shot and understand what drives our business, that is the slide. So top 10 winners and losers from inception. And what you will see is that on the winners column, we have, I think now, over 10 approved drugs. And most of those companies we identified at some pretty early stage in the life cycle of that company, sometimes when it's private, a couple instances when the asset was in academic hands. So when you think about what actually drives the business or the returns um, of the funds, it is finding things early, 
when they're misunderstood or simply no one's paying attention, doing the work, getting convicted, and then supporting it along multiple steps, stages of the life cycle. And typically this could span, call it five years, until you get three baggers, five baggers, 10 baggers, and then they make it on that top 10 list. So a lot of what we think about is we're ultimately always looking for something that has the potential that can be added to that list. What do the losers look like? It's actually one of the biggest learnings that I've had in terms of, if you're to say, since I started as a PM, what have I changed about the strategy? The losers are, at a basic level, you know, we play in a binary space, and that's part of the business. We're wrong, you know, high 30s, 40% of the time, 40 some odd percent of the time. But the key is making those losses as small as possible. And you'll see at the top of the losers list, one key theme, which is that even when we thought we were fundamentally right from our analysis on a name, we've gone up against savvy management teams that then find a way to capture or realize value despite the fundamentals being against them. So like our second largest loser was actually a short position against a company called Map Pharma. They're developing a single-use inhaler for migraine. And the very short version of the story is our research said that they can't manufacture this stuff. It's very, very hard to make inhalers with a single puff in them work. And we had done all this diligence and we we're 99% sure. I don't want to sound like a crazy person. So I'll say 99, not 99.9. <laughs> but we were very confident. You couldn't manufacture it and so it can't be approved. And we were short in size. And they sold the company to Allergan. And we didn't even give up then, by the way. After they announced the deal, we tried to get an audience with Allergan at the time and tried to convince them of why it couldn't be approved. And there wasn't much interest in that message. The deal closed and the drug got rejected a month later and got rejected two more times after that, I think. So I one big lesson um, in the losers was do not underestimate what savvy business people are capable of. You know, one adjustment that we made as a result was on our shorts, we slashed the max position size. There's different levers that'll drive stocks. And particularly in this space, you think about just the science and so that, that binary nature of approval. Then you've got the business, the market they're selling into. And then as you just introduced, there's this management element. When you're assessing a position, how do you think about each of those and the interplay between them? I think the honest answer is we've always been very analytically focused. So the probability, the size of the opportunity, and then related to that, the valuation piece. I like to say if Warren Buffett were to ever invest in biotech, you know, development stage biotech, maybe he'd use the framework that we would use. Now, of course, I know he never would. <laughs> <laughs> but I use that analogy just to make the point that we're fundamentally value-oriented and we are looking for asymmetric risk-reward. The trick is that you have to overlay that we live in a probabilistic business or one that's binary. So we've always been very focused on those variables. I will say that on the management piece, I kind of make it very simple. I put things in three basic buckets. Low percentage of the time management that is so stellar that you think they can take a very marginal product, right? They can sell ice to an Eskimo and there's drugs like that. And they can find a way to get it across the finish line and make it commercially successful. And there's certainly drugs like that. Then the other extreme, also a low percentage of management teams, is those that will screw it up. The execution, and that's extremely frustrating for analytically oriented people. <laughs> 
And then the middle bucket, which is most, which is that you have good management, solid management, knows what they're doing. And it's really about supporting them just to maximize the odds uh, however we can. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm curious how you think about the changing nature of your probability assessments. So you say like your, your winners ultimately are the ones you've rode all the way, but there's new information that's coming up all the time. So how do you go about making those decisions? Yeah, it gets into a little bit of the portfolio manager and trader part of the job. And I think the way we do is pretty simple. We just consider each point in time, almost kind of like you're re-underwriting the investment, right? So no matter where an investment is trading or where it's been marked last, you're thinking about then what is the next step in terms of key event, probability around that event, and then the asymmetry around that event. Now, there is for sure some art to this, right? It's dependent on top-down things, like what kind of market environment you're in. You know, as an example, um, kind of the worst part of the bear market sell-off this cycle, Q2 of last year, you could have been right on everything, right? Call the event right, Day the news comes out, the stock trades down because it's a source of liquidity like everything else in biotech that quarter. So you got to factor in those elements. That's part of the art. And then even in regular markets, you have to think about, okay, so I know it's a 10x if it's 100% probability it makes it to the end of the rainbow. But what proportion of that 10x should something be valued at or trade at at the different steps along the way? And there... You know, there are exercises you can do, right? There are comparables analysis um, that you learn in business school and as a young banker to help frame that up. And then there's also some judgment and then you got to overlay the macro environment. So those are the things that we kind of layer on top to size positions dynamically over time. A couple of things you said relating to portfolio construction that when I piece it together in my head, I scratch my head a little bit. So one is that the conviction leads to concentration. The other is that these probabilities can change over time and you need to be a little bit dynamic. And then the last is you know, where you started, which is this is a really volatile space at the stock level. What does a portfolio look like over time? Well, I'll tell you how we're positioned right now, for example, and generally speaking. In our flagship fund, we're about 70% a little bit north of that net long. We are 90 some odd percent invested. So on the long side, 
So our gross exposure, if you add long and short, is not that high, right? It's like 90 by 20. And so you net with 70. That is not that atypical for us. I would say our outer bounds are net of 30 and net of 90. And then the high end of gross is probably like 150. So that's what it looks like just by the numbers. I would say a very important element that we haven't touched on yet is our best ideas, this conviction piece. Our very best ideas, uh, and sometimes we don't even have one that reaches this level in a given year, but we are willing to take up to a 5% loss if we're flat out wrong. So we have to use the R and guess what the worst case scenario is, both fundamentally and factoring in the market environment. We've been relatively disciplined about that. So you see on that top 10 losers list that we've only had a couple positions that lose us more than 5%. If you have those kinds of guideposts in your mind, then you can kind of start to see how the portfolio falls out from that. So we'll have larger positions that are 5 to 10% plus of the portfolio. That must mean that those larger positions have some kind of base business value support. They sell a drug on the market and we're playing for the second drug. And then you have a number of positions that are sub 5% because there's a lot of single product development stage companies and the downside is 90% or 100%. (laughs) And those positions almost universally will be less than 5%. There's some strategies where 10% position any kind of biotech company, commercial stage or otherwise, would seem like an enormous position. For that reason, it is a special strategy and it is a fair amount of concentration. How have you changed the way you thought about the number of positions and the trading as you've grown your assets over time? It's evolved around the edges. What I just walked through fundamentally hasn't changed. But what has changed, I would say the biggest piece is on the tail. So 80% of our business approximately is public and the portfolio looks exactly like what I just described, but now 20% is private. And in that private bucket, we're doing mid to late stage venture type investments. We call it crossover, right, in biotech. And then we're doing some early stage company creation, series A types of investments. So we've essentially added a farm team over time, which consists of those private investments, right? A typical year, we're doing 10 to 20 of those uh, in total. So the goal of that, of those private investments, you get from the name. We call it a farm team. So the goal is actually that they go public and then we continue to re-underwrite. And from that farm team, we're looking for people to bring up into the majors. The nice thing about that process is it gives us even more time to do deep diligence, waves and waves of diligence, and also to get to know management teams and know what bucket they're in and get comfortable with them so that ultimately we feel more comfortable making a 5 or a 10% position. I would say that's been the primary change in the portfolio over the last handful of years, which is just that direct consequence of the growth of the private business. When you cite the statistics of predicting drugs in that like 60 to even 70% success rate, that's even higher than what you'd expect you know, outside of the biotech life sciences investing. So how do you think about the trade-off of concentration to make a big bet in a volatile space anyway versus, hey, if you have this hit rate, maybe you should have a more diversified book? Part of the challenge is that high probability investments, or at least by our assessment, they don't grow on trees. You'd probably have less volatility in terms of a strategy if there were more of them. So the individual idiosyncratic losses and wins would be smaller. It'd be a smoother kind of return profile. But the reality is, you know, there's 50 drugs approved a year in the United States. So there's not that many. And then you got to find the ones that are misunderstood, mispriced, and all that. So 
we are willing to tolerate a bit more vol uh, idiosyncratically to just focus on kind of those high probability investments. When you're doing your research with the team, what are the things that you get conviction in or the signposts of that conviction, both that you think the drug's going to work and that you have a differential view from the market? It's a very straightforward question. (laughs) 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 But um, yeah, the answer is actually big. I mean, I think at the end of the day, what it's about is about doing different types of exercises, research or analytical type exercises, that you're confident are going to be predictive of the future, right? That's the name of the game. And it depends on the investment type, the situation, and where the misunderstanding is. So, you know, I'll give a couple of different examples. Sometimes the misunderstanding is people don't understand statistics. And so you can have edge by doing it properly. So there was a wave a bunch of years ago of constipation drugs in development. And the end point for constipation studies is how many bowel movements you have. Obvious. Because that's the goal. And the nature of drug development tends to be when you progress from early stage trials to late stage trials, the regulatory agencies like FDA make you do longer studies. Initially, you don't have that much safety information. You don't have a lot of toxicity data. And so they're like, okay, test it for a month. Do your phase two for a month. And then when you prove yourself and it looks like an interesting drug, then in your phase three, we want you to do six months. Right? Because we want to be sure that it's safe. So in constipation, the way this plays out is people do proof of concept studies over a month. And you would have these drugs that would have really, really impressive p-values. Right, So if you gave that data to a statistician, they would tell you the phase three is 99.999% of being successful. And then you saw all these phase threes fail. And we're like, what's wrong? And I can't definitively tell you the answer, but I can tell you what we did, and I can tell you my hypothesis. We studied all these historical constipation trials, going back into the literature, and we found that phase twos, a lot of them work, and phase threes, they all fail, every single one. So empirically, we said, actually, the statistician is wrong. doesn't matter how how great the p-value in phase two, the phase three failure odds are high. In hindsight, I'll tell you what my intuition tells me, uh, and this is just a hypothesis, which is that constipation patients are real human beings and they're willing to take their placebo for a month, right? But when they can't go to the bathroom for a month, they walk into the Dwayne Reed, the CVS, there's a whole aisle called (laughs) constipation beds. And, and And what you saw in phase three was exactly that. There was this big placebo effect, okay? Anyway, very long story to say, So we spend a lot of time studying, looking for statistical trends and anomalies, things that we can take advantage of in data. And a lot of it's not just theory. You have to gather data and you have to really understand it and understand what you can actually predict. Now, uh, opposite example, much briefer story, is on the commercial side. We were known in the early days of making some investments in rare disease companies. You know, With rare disease products, when you launch, Oftentimes, there's tons of uncertainty. You don't know if there's going to be no patients out there with the disease or way more than people expect. And we've got very good at doing exercises by, for example, counting patients at certain centers, by knowing how to use insurance data, more recently knowing how to use genetic data from public databases, and using that to conclude what the outcome was likely to be, that 
it's going to be way smaller or way bigger, continues to be a huge source of edge for us. Uh, because that work is, it's not, it doesn't take a genius to do it, but it takes a lot of effort. As you look at the universe of companies from development stage businesses to you know a couple of larger ones, do you have views on where companies are structurally advantaged or disadvantaged in this entire process of this long development cycle process? Right now, one of the dynamics that's, that's happening in the space is that pharma, which pharma has been kind of between a couple of uh, major patent expiry waves. So about 10 years ago, there was a big wave, Lipitor, the antidepressants, all these big drugs went away. And then there is this wave of uh, breakthroughs in cancer, you know, the PD-1s, for example, Keytruda, Opdivo, a lot of people are familiar with. Um, and it's a period of relative um, growth for the industry. And now in the back half of this decade, again, you're going to have these big patent expirations that's on higher revenue basis. So there is tremendous pressure in the industry for those companies to try to mitigate those patent expiries and do deals. So I would say those biotech companies, so the, uh, the targets, um, the ones that, are, that have the best seat in the house are the ones that are developing drugs that have the potential to move the needle for a pharma. So it has to be a blockbuster drug and is in a s- strategic area or disease or technology that fits into pharma portfolios. Those are the kings in this cycle. Even in a tough market, um, capital availability for those companies is good. And valuations are, are pretty good. The ones that have the worst seat in the house are the opposite of that. One particular example that we find kind of interesting is that companies that actually have succeeded all the way you know, through development and they're getting ready to launch a product, but that product is a sub $1 billion peak sales product. Could be pretty big, like half a billion. And in you know, before the bear market, that would be a very exciting investment. But the problem with a half a billion dollar peak sales drug, and even worse, if it's not in a strategically important area, that company is, has got a terrible situation because you have to raise two to three hundred million dollars for the next 24 months to launch that drug. And in this market environment, People are so risk averse that they don't want to take that risk, and it's hard to find two hundred to three hundred million dollars. So those are losers in the environment, and those are the kinds of situations that we think selectively you can find like really interesting opportunities. But if you can help solve that problem and increase the odds that they can successfully launch and achieve that peak sales estimate, then you can really create a lot of value. You mentioned the opportunities and challenges of a listed vehicle. What have been the trials and tribulations of that entity? It's been a really interesting adventure. There are a lot of really positive things about a listed fund. I think the challenge is that UK in general, and then specifically for listed funds, there's not a deep audience and there's not a lot of liquidity for that. So that's one challenge for sure. The other is it's not a familiar product for people. So like a lot of people now want to allocate to biotech, but they're just not familiar with that structure. And some folks, you know, they don't want something that's marked to market every day. <laughs> um, so there's just some interesting dynamics that make it a little bit more challenging in some ways. But I really do think the strengths of the vehicle are such that it's worth us to continue to invest in it. What's the competition like for RTW? The industry's grown a ton. And asset management firms or investment firms have grown with the industry. But that said, it's still a pretty small business, right? Small ecosystem. 
So I don't know the exact number, but healthcare dedicated firms that are managing meaningful amounts of capital, like north of a billion dollars, is probably you know a dozen plus or minus something like that. You complement that with some bigger pools of capital at platform firms or generalist firms, but you add that all up, and it's a short list. Everyone on that list does it a little bit differently. I think the things that have differentiated us are a lot of the things that we've talked about. You know, we're not just full life cycle, but we also have the flexibility and the creativity to financially support companies in all kinds of creative ways, whether public, private, stock, royalty, you know, licensing transaction. I think that differentiates us. And then I think just the way we've kind of structured and organized our team is differentiating. I think the companies that we work with like interacting with a team that looks like that because it actually looks more like their own teams. But at the end of the day, one of the really nice things about our business is that this was a very, very small business. Even 10 years ago, not only was the list even shorter, but the firms were tiny. So the culture that developed in our ecosystem was one that we worked together to get things. So most of us are friends with some portion of the rest of us. And the culture is to default to not be competitive, but try to be collaborative. And, and that spirit, I think, has stayed relatively intact, even as the firms have grown. For some of the firms that haven't made it and come and gone, what are some of the lessons that you've learned of you know, mistakes that others have made? One of them is the transition that we talked about from small to scalable. People always said, oh, you know, the firm's actually way riskier when, you're, when you cross a billion dollars. And before I went through it myself, I didn't understand it. And now I really get it. It's very hard, especially when the wiring of your leadership, everything that's gotten them to that point are the same things that will cause their business to fail. (laughs) (laughs) Being a lone wolf, not embracing teamwork, not embracing structure. I think that's one key thing that's caused firm failure. I think another key thing is falling in love with science and not doing the risk management part of the job properly. You know, there's a a saying, right? Doctors can't balance their checkbooks. Um, Of course, there's some truth in a lot of sayings. (laughs) (laughs) And there's truth in that one. Um, A lot of people get into this business because they are passionate about science, number one. And that's true of uh, a lot of the folks here too. But it's tricky to bring both of those things together and have discipline especially with risk management. But even if you've sized things appropriately, to to have a very sober view, objective view of truly what is the worst case, easy to say, hard to do. So that's caused a lot of failure. So as you look out after this significant retraction in the space, what opportunities are you most excited about? The innovation that we're seeing, especially in drugs, is very broad. We see a ton in cancer, Cancer is always the no- number one area of drug development. It's obvious high met need is the number two killer in uh, the United States and other developed countries. But now with information in the form of genetic drivers, we're redefining cancer into what it actually is. Not just pointing out that, hey, you have cells that are growing when they shouldn't be, that's cancer, and then pointing out where they found it. Oh, lung cancer. <laughs> if you think about it, it's so archaic to refer to a disease that way. So now cancer is being redefined into its genetic drivers. That's unleashed a ton of opportunity and innovation. And you have all these new tools like even chemotherapy, for example. The problem with chemotherapy has always been that there's a lot of collateral damage. It kills tumor cells, but it kills you too. And now you have things like antibody drug conjugates 
which can improve what we call the therapeutic index by getting that delivered to the tumor cell. So oncology, we're seeing tons of innovation uh, for similar reasons, immunology as well, a lot of unmet need there, a lot of diseases that don't have enough therapies. And then I would say some tissues that have been hard to get to, the brain, the eye, the heart, because of new modalities and their ability to get drugs into those tissues are also seeing significant ways of innovation. So this kind of mega innovation wave gets me excited. The one thing that I think a lot of venture capitalists talk about, which that we are actually less excited about, is that there's a lot of venture capitalists focused on actually what is the next new modality? What is the 15th and the 16th? You know, as an example, gene editing gets tons of airplay. But our view is kind of, actually, we just tripled the list. And, you know, this list, like gene therapy, as an example, there's a lot of work we could do to make gene therapy better, right? Cheaper, improve the therapeutic index. And I actually think that we don't need to increase the number of modalities at all. If we just focused on improving what we have, this new updated list, I think that would last the industry 10 to 20 years. What are you most concerned about? You know, I think one of the things I'm most concerned about is payers and the pressure that we're seeing on paying for innovation in drug development. That's probably my number one long-term concern. I think there's short-term things like, for example, you know, COVID actually had a major impact on how the FDA functions. They moved heaven and earth to get those vaccines and the first handful of drugs approved. It burned a lot of people out. And so you had tremendous turnover at FDA and there's a whole training process and all these things. And when you're training a lot of new people, you tend to, uh, things shift more in a conservative way. Because if you're handed the manual, you're, you don't have the judgment and experience to be not paying attention to the manual yet. Um, so I think the FDA is going through that process on a short-term basis. But I think the, the pricing concern is a big one. We think about at the firm different ways where we can be advocates for innovation. I think there's more work for us to do there um, because I really do think there's a misunderstood narrative out there that folks need to do a better job in our industry of helping to correct. How do you think about positioning the firm to take advantage of the opportunities that you see coming you know, over the next five, 10 years? Well, I think now we have uh, the team uh, that's in place. We have the capabilities that we care about. So I think now it's really about executing against it. So of course, from a sourcing perspective, we got to find those opportunities. I think it is a wonderful time because you know, the cost of equity is so high to then also wear our deal-making hats and all the building, transacting capabilities that we have built and put those to good use. Because some companies, you know, their capital needs now are so large relative to their market cap, because a lot of things have very small market caps, that you can't solve their problems with uh, a deal that's just like an equity offering. Because, you know, the rough rule of thumb is you can do an equity offering for like, 10 to 20% of a company's market cap at any given time. But some companies need four, three, four X that amount of capital. So to be able to go to a company and say, we can bring together mul multiple pieces of a deal so that you have the capital that you need to launch a drug or to run your phase three trial, we have the capabilities now at the right time for this tough moment in biotech. All right, Rod, I don't want to let you go without asking a couple of closing questions. 
What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? You know, I have a kind of a straightforward life. I just like doing things that are physical. I don't have one single sport that I love, but I do a little bit of a lot of different things. That's probably my number one thing. I'd say hobby-wise, I have a lot of guitars. And based on the number of guitars I have, you'd think that I'm an incredible guitarist. I'm basically a beginner intermediate guitar player, but I love learning the guitar too. Clears my head and and you know gives me some connection to music. What type of investment do you gravitate to like a moth to the flame? You know, I think things that I describe as lock and key have always been kind of things that we've just just feel like uh, we can bet on, right? So like if you know that a tumor is caused by this mutation or if you know that this rare disease, they are missing this gene and if you can express the protein that's missing or replace it, that's probably going to work, <laughs> And, and as simple as it sounds, we continue to make investments like that, and uh, they continue to be very rewarding and have high odds. What's your biggest pet peeve? I think from an investing perspective, it's what we talked about when, and this is the analyst in me, when we just see a drug that has so much promise, but we're in one of those rare instances where the team that's taking it forward, you don't have confidence in. It's really frustrating. At least now we have more ways to help improve the odds. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Don't make me choose. At each stage or each job, I've been really lucky and I'll have like one or two mentors that then I'll carry forward in my life. So my first boss, Eric, he just set such a great example as a human being and as an academic. My second boss, Wayne, his ability to hone in on what is important and then do deep, deep work is to this day, I mean, he was one of the great ones. At DK, Scott and Tom, business builders, pulled me out of my minutia and made me think about bigger picture, risk and macro. But one person that wasn't my boss, but was a colleague and mentor, Kevin Tang, about 10 years older than me, he really showed me the possibilities to influence and build. And, you know, we did some deals together when I was just dipping my toe into that. And I really learned an incredible amount from him. What was the most challenging moment in your career or life? Professionally, I'd say my toughest moment has to be 2011. So we launched this place in 2009. I lost our biggest client. Our assets went from small to two-thirds smaller. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was tough. So one, we had to decide to keep going. My CFO took on two part-time clients to keep the uh, doors open. We actually, I think our first office was maybe 2,000 square feet, maybe even less. And we took on two subletters so that we could pay the rent. We let a couple people go and we only had a few people. Very, very challenging. But, you know, I actually have really fond memories of it now, obviously, <laughs> since we We've, uh, we've done better since. Uh, and actually, the folks that came in and subletted now have become lifelong friends. Uh, and they've been uh, fortunately successful too. That was a difficult time. For you to get through that period of time after you've cut the costs and kind of make it to the other side, what do you remember that allowed you to do that? When young folks ask me what they should think about you know, before considering to start their own thing, I always give this example, which is that like you can't plan that 
things are going to go up in a straight line. There's no straight line in anything. So if you're going to make a decision based on planning, plan for a not straight line and don't make it a two-year plan, make it a five or a 10-year plan. That's number one. And then number two, don't do it for bad reasons. And a bad reason is if the only reason is to make money. And for me, the most important reason I was able to persist was because in that moment, I was the glass half full view was I'm my own boss. And that was very, very important to me at the time. And as long as I can pay my bills, pay the rents, I loved my job. I enjoyed what I was doing each day. Then that worst case scenario, that's okay. So it wasn't that I was going to turn this thing around and we were going to be a great success. Especially, you know, at that point, you're always at your least confident and you really can't plan for success because it looks so far away. It's the obvious things. Be passionate about what you're doing, enjoy it for what it is, and plan for the long term. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? You know, my parents were of the generation, um, and maybe it was just their style, where they gave you a lot of personal responsibility and you had to figure stuff out. I think in hindsight, that was huge. And then I'd say the other thing, my dad specifically, he always told these stories about his childhood. And most of the stories were some version about him ignoring authority and then doing <laughs> something bad. <laughs> and then some somehow coming out on top. Like uh, there's one he... He um, forged his mom's signature, said that he had to be out of school for because he was sick when he wasn't sick. He didn't go to school for a month. And then eventually, and he would just go to the beach and hang out. And then eventually he got busted. They held him back, but because he was such a bright kid, he took the test. He was in Hong Kong and you take these A-levels and whatever, and it's very test-driven. Took the test and then skipped the, skipped the grade that he was held back from. Anyways, so those kinds of stories always like, I think, imprinted in me this faith in yourself. Think for yourself. And then once you're confident, don't let people get in your way, for better or for worse. <laughs> I, I think that uh, it's uh, really put a very strong independent streak in me. Rob, what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? You know, early on, I think I had some talents and skills and I gained confidence from that. But I did have some very lone wolf type of personality attributes because of that. And I wish I had learned the value of teamwork and to embrace that even sooner than we did. Uh, we did it when we needed to. But because I realized that to really accomplish things that are big, to really have a bigger impact, you can't do it alone. You have to do it with people. It actually requires way more self-confidence to do that because you have to be okay with welcoming people in that know way more than you do about different things. And you have to have, you got to be sure enough in yourself, right? Then to be able to work with those people in a way that's positive. Ron, it's great to catch up and thanks so much for, for sharing this story of this uh, incredible success and opportunity. Yeah, no, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time. 